Reflections on Dante's Paradiso by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 3. Well, last week I suggested uh, with Barfield, really, that the, that the Eucharist was the connection between final participation, original participation and final participation. And, and this week I'm suggesting that there's something called historical consciousness, which, which the word history in that phrase, historical in that phrase, may even be a, a, a mistake because we're so, we're so comfortable with it. Um, but I don't want to call it evolutionary consciousness because that's, that's been, uh, that's, that's been uh, in a sense, claimed too by a certain – that's defined a certain thing. So better to use the, the more familiar term perhaps. But anyway, to suggest that some kind of consciousness may be the appropriate uh, antennae for picking up some hint of final participation. As it as it was for Jung and for and for Robert Duncan, and for many others that could be mentioned, but is does it relate to the Eucharist? And last week I was saying it was the Eucharist. This week the historical consciousness does it relate to the Eucharist? Well, the Eucharist was a Passover meal. Both Moses and Jesus are leaving something that is a not just a past event, but a past event that that recreates itself. Kierkegaard said, it's not worthwhile remembering the past which cannot become a present. It's not worthwhile remembering that past which cannot become a present. The idea that we are separated is an idea that belongs to that middle order, that what I said last week, I suggested last week was the proof rock realm of reality, uh, in between original and final participation, that we are separated. And one of the ways in which we are most separated is temporally. I mean, it gets into very subtle subdivisions. One generation and another occupying the same planet at the same time can't sense a, commu- a connection. Uh, Chesterton said we dis- disenfranchised uh, the. He said we don't have a, a full uh, enfranchisement yet because we have disenfranchised the dead simply because they're dead and the unborn simply because they're not here yet. We no, have no sense of being connected to that great, what Paul calls the mystical body. And that's really what Jung and Robert Duncan were getting in touch with, was the great mystical body. And one of the things that most abruptly interferes with our sense of that is time. The other thing about the Incarnation is you have the Last Supper, the Eucharist, the crucifixion, the resurrection, all of that. The most important thing that ever happens is a past event. That's a wonderful thing. The most important thing that ever happens is a past event. What does that mean for us? Doesn't that change our whole relationship to, 
to history. It means we must constantly go back to it and interpret it. The way the Jews keep going back to the Passover. The way the Christians keep going back to the Eucharist. The central event of all times already happened. The definitive ultimate revelation event has already happened. And it's the place, as Eliot said, where past and future are gathered. And that's, and that's the ticket to the, to the final participation, where past and future are gathered. So in the Eucharist, there is do this, and we could, we could uh, diagram the sentence, do in the future, this in the present, in memory of me, looking back. In the same way, one could go through the same kind of comparison with the Passover meal. The Passover meal is the, is the past that has become the present. If the past can become the present, then the artificial division between the past and the pre present is exactly that. It does not stand up. If the most important future event, speaking mythologically, is the second coming, that is to say, something that's already happened, then the artificial distinction between it and the first coming and today's coming in whatever form is also exactly that artificial. Aside from the meal, uh, in both the, the Jewish and the Christian, that is, that's why we are a Judeo-Christian uh, the, the religious tradition, dominant religious traditions, Judeo-Christian one. In both of them, there is the meal, the Passover or the Eucharist, and the text. And in both of them, the text tells, with a whole lot of help from the muse of history, Clio, that, that comes from the Greek side of the picture. But in both of them, the, the text tells the real history of things, the real history, with the help of the creative imagination. Because the real history is the history seen by the creative imagination, re-experienced by the creative imagination. Well, anyway, so in addition to the meal, there is the text. And history is not the documentary record but it relies on the documentary record as to the, to the extent that the muse of history helps interpret the document. Well, there is, in that regard, and this is a little strange, but since we're on the subject, I'd like to throw it in, something, to my mind, strangely parallel to Toynbee's reversal of things. He thought the business of history was civilization and the business of religion was to aid in the process. He came to regard the business of history as being religion and the, and the business of civilization was to aid in the process. In terms of a text that goes along with the meal, so to speak, 
Paul Ricoeur offers, the French philosopher, offers an interesting parallel to the Toynbean reversal. Ricoeur says, I would oppose the self, which proceeds from the understanding of the text, to the ego, which claims to precede it. It is the text with its universal power of world disclosure which gives a self to the ego. We'd have to get a blackboard and draw that up there and compare it to Toynbee to, to you know, make the comparison palpable, I think. But he says the self comes from an understanding of the text while the ego labors under this presumption that it is that it precedes and is independent of the text and because of that presumption is not available for the transformation and for Ricoeur it is the text which has the universal power of world disclosure and therefore the power to give the self back to the ego. Now that's kind of heady stuff, but I think it relates to the mystery of history as something requiring us to look back and discover that in the process the distinction between what's back there, what's here, and what's going to be dissolves. When Jung was standing in the plains of Africa, experiencing that which he tried to articulate in his memoirs, what was he seeing? Was, what, was, he, was he seeing past, present, or future? I, it's on page 255 of his memoirs. Go read it. Ask yourself that question as you read down through there. Is he talking about the past, present, or future? You cannot distinguish. There is not that distinction in it. It is the place where past and future are gathered. The important part in all this that has to be said right at the end, and that is that what is so important and what Jung emphasized so much about moving out of original participation into final participation is that we become uniquely ourselves, distinctly individual, and that's and that's the in a way the the pain and trauma of moving out of that participation is to become in some sense an isolate and therefore ready to move into the excuse me final participation John Lukacs this historian that I've quoted earlier said historical knowledge is always personal and participant He's talking about historical knowledge in that deeper sense that I've been trying to talk about. Historical knowledge is always deeply personal and participant. It is not some gathering of facts. In Canto 8, Charles Martel says this, what nature gives a man, fortune must nourish concordantly or nature like any seed out of its proper climate cannot flourish. In the world below, 
excuse me, if the world below would learn to heed the plan of nature's firm foundation and build on that, it then would have the best from every man. But into the holy orders you deflect the man born to strap on sword and shield and make a king of one whose intellect is given to writing sermons. And in this way your footsteps leave the road and go astray. Every, what's important is individual distinction. Otherwise, what happened to Jung, what happened to Duncan, what happened to the mystics, what happens to the poets and the creative artists and to, some, and to us every once in a while is a reabsorption in the original participation, what Neumann called a recollectivization of human consciousness. It has to be after we have become fully distinct, fully individualized, fully uh, ourselves, and then it can become the journey into final participation. And I'll end with just one little thing that uh, John Keats wrote in one of his letters. There may be intelligences or sparks of divinity in millions, but they are not souls till they acquire identities, till each one is personally itself. And then you have the crisis. That's the important – that has to happen. That's what the middle ground is all about. And then you get to that place where you have to say, Caesar I was, Justinian I am. And move into – make the move into the paradoxical world as Justinian did, understanding history at a deeper level, being willing to – Submit to a paradoxical appreciation of things and move toward that place where one could be with Jung or with Robert Duncan or any of the others and look out there and see, be where that communion is happening, not only the communion in situ, but the communion in time as well, the mystical body. Well, in today's material, we go from the beginning of Canto 10 through halfway through, almost halfway through Canto 18. It's a huge amount of material and uh, very meaningful material in that we cross two uh, typical thresholds in, the, in this cantico, which is, uh, as with the Inferno and Purgatorio, so with the Paradiso, Canto 10 uh, is a new beginning. Uh, and there's a, a new, a, a, a sort of a second prologue. And Canto 16, as with Canto 16 in the Inferno and the Purgatorio, so with the Paradiso, Canto 16 involves something uh, that can be discerned as a crisis of the will, which is then resolved so that the work can go on in Canto 17. And uh, major things are being worked out. Some of it is lost on us moderns because it's, much of it is being worked out in terms of medieval ecclesiology and medieval um, scholastic philosophy and theology. Uh, but it is a masterful uh, uh, synthesis by Dante of a new way of relating to these to these things, one uh, anything said about this is a is a reduction, and I don't want to 
I'll have to, of course, say some things that flirt with that uh, error. But uh, one overview might be to say that Dante is moving, as he has in the past, from an energy based on fission to an energy based on fusion, or from an energy that is based on contention to an energy source that is based on attention. And what results finally in the end is a change of voice. And uh, we'll, we'll conclude with that change of voice. You know, poets are always uh, asking, to, uh, poets, the, the first obligation of poet is to, is to uh, acquire his or her own voice. And the question is, how does one acquire that voice? And if we take that question beyond the poetic, liter- uh, the, the uh, specific poetic issue to life in general, our lives in general, then it would be, how do I arrive at that place of authenticity from which I can speak and have authority? So all of these are major questions that are that are going through here. That One of the dazzling things is that Dante is dealing with these major issues uh, in the context of long elaborate and some sometimes detailed uh, discussions with theologians about the details of medieval theology. Now that is, it's, uh, it's hard enough to write a great poem under any circumstances, uh, but uh, you, if you remember, Melville had uh, a, a bunch of pagan harpooners to work with, and uh, Shakespeare usually worked with... Uh, with uh, uh, broken-hearted or irate lovers or power-grabbing politicians or something, all kinds of marvelous poetry can be generated under those conditions. And Dante is generating some pretty marvelous poetry simply by having discourses with the theologians, which is in itself a remarkable feat. And what we want to do today in part will be to take, to try to take a fresh look at uh, theology and orthodoxy and all of that in order to try to put ourselves in, to some degree where Dante is. Okay. Canto 10 begins with these lines. Contemplating his son with that third essence of love breathed forth forever by them both, the omnipotent and ineffable first presence created all that moves in mind and space. And now I want to come back to this in reverse order. First of all, mind and space. Uh, let me quote a little comment from a book I've already quoted from uh, the last couple of weeks, Owen Barfield's Saving the Appearances. In there he says, We have already seen that even in the Middle Ages man's experience of space was clearly different from our own. And the old tendency to experience as one what we now distinguish absolutely as mind on one hand and space on the other still finds an echo in the Divine Comedy, especially in the tenth canto of the Paradiso. We think of mind and space as two distinct realms of reality, and for Dante there is at least the vestigial understanding that they are not two. Uh, not that one is a metaphor for the other. That's a, that's, a way of, that's a way of trying to have some relationship to an earlier appreciation, uh, but that they really and truly are the mirrors of each other. So that mind and space are not too... Now, this is a medieval way of saying what we, perhaps in a more flat-footed psychological way in our time, talk about when we talk of metaphors uh, and of 
when I, it, it takes one to see one. What, what I see out there I, is something of who I am or what, what it is. It's, it's, it's a medieval cor, uh, 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 correspondence. It has a correspondence to um, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle where he says uh, the observer and the observed. The observer is, uh, invo- is, has an impact on what he observes so that they are really part and parcel of one gestalt. And you can't separate them strictly. Well, Dante is alluding to this in the in the fourth line of Canto Ten, hinting to his reader as he needs to more often than most now. He has to drop little hints to the reader. The hint is here: I am going to describe because what else? Uh, how else can I? The glories of paradise in spatial dimensions. But you must understand that what's being described is a state of consciousness. Now. You, you you understand that that paraphrase of this three or four word phrase is a little wordy and a little highfalutin, but I think that carries the weight of what Dante is getting at. More important than that, however, is what's in the first line. Contemplating his son with that third essence of love that breathes forth forever, blah, 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 the point is, create well, the creation of the cosmos tapped as its source of energy the mutual contemplation of the Son and the Father. That's what those first lines of the Canto 10 say. That the source of energy for the creation of the cosmos was the mutual contemplation of the Son and the Father. And the agent or the instrumentality of that creation was what is the result of that mutual contemplation, which is the Spirit. At the end of this material today, Dante will have an encounter with his ancestral father, and he will leave that encounter inspired to recreate the world. So if you see the parallel that's being worked out here, very subtly, but we have the cosmic paradigm, which will then be recapitulated, so to speak, in Dante's own personal life in Canto 16-17. Okay, now to go on down Canto 10, a few lines, Dante says to the reader, turn with me to that point at which one motion and another cross, and there begin to savor your delight in the Creator's art. We're still talking about the creation and the conditions for creation, the source of energy for creation, and he says, notice the place where one motion and another cross, and I'll come back to that in a second. For if these two motions never crossed, the influence of the heavens would be weakened and most of its power upon earth be lost. Now the two motions he's talking about are the two celestial turnings that that, that, that were part of Dante's understanding. This is from the Ptolemaic system, and it is, the first is the planetary cycle which goes essentially around the equator, and, the, and this is a daily or diurnal cycle. These, the, the planets and the moon and the stars circle daily. The other cycle is an annual cycle, which is that the sun moves in an elliptic as it circles. And because it moves in an elliptic, we have seasons. And it is the seasons that give us the whole energy of fecundity on the planet. So it's very important 
in order for there to be creativity, something has to be off. Something has to be... We have to be a little bit off in order to be creative. Beware, if we ever could, which we cannot, of raising our children perfectly. Because there has to be something that's skewed just a little bit to add that little energy quotient that can become, under the proper circumstances, creative. And it is this slight skew in the sun in its annual cycle as it crossed. Dante says, now notice, these two cycles cross. The great cycle of the annual cycle, which is on a tilt at an eclipse, and the more normal and predictable daily cycle, which is on a plane. And Dante says, now what we must see is where these two uh, cycles or or circles or patterns cross. And of course, the two places they cross are the equinox, the, the winter and the excuse me, the autumn and spring equinox. And then Dante goes on. For if its deviation were to be increased or lessened, much would then be wanting both north and south from the earth's harmony. That is to say, this this crossing of the energies is such that it is precise. If it were a little bit less of a of a uh, crossing, that is to say, if the if the angle between them were lessened, the energy would not be sufficient to support what has to be supported. Okay, there would not be enough tension in the system. If it were greater, there would be too much chaos. And so he he says, if its deviation were to be increased or lessened, much would then be wanting both north and south from the earth's harmony. Needs that tension, but it also needs to be right on that edge. Then he goes on to say, and and this is Dante not often stepping from behind his mask as the the participant speaking straight to the reader. Stay on at table, reader, and meditate upon this foretaste if you wish to dine on joy itself before it is too late. I set out food, but you yourselves must feed for the great matters I record demand all my attention and I must proceed. So he's saying, pay attention to that thing I just said. It wasn't some, uh, it wasn't some uh, casual metaphor thrown off. It's key to what is about to follow. And what, what is key is that need for there to be that tension, that crossing, that conflict and the requirement that it be kept in absolute precise uh, uh, position so that it is not overwhelmed either by a lack of energy on one hand or by chaos on the other. What Dante is doing here, and I suspect consciously, though there's no way of proving that, is addressing himself to what was and had been, and to some extent still is, the perennial symbol for the par- for paradoxical truth, which is squaring the circle. How does one square the circle? That's the question asked, which is, which is sort of the Western koan. You know, what is the sound of one hand clapping? How do you square the circle? 
And so Dante has not, he, he's not talking about a square here, but he's talking about cycles that cross so that you get both the circle and that crossing. Now here's what uh, Chesterton said about those two images in one of his writings. The circle is perfect and infinite in its nature, but it is fixed forever in its size. It can never be larger or smaller. But the cross, though it has at its heart a collision and a contradiction, can extend its forearms forever without altering its shape. Because it has a paradox at its center, it can grow without changing. It's a wonderful insight into not only the cross as a geometrical form, but the cross as, uh, as, a, as a symbol of the mystery. Because it has a contradiction and a collision at its heart, it can extend indefinitely without changing its shape. And so what Dante has done is he has, he has brought these two things together, the cycle and the cross. In a sense, he has, the cycles provide the order and the cross or the crossing provides the energy. Simone Weil said, everything we want contradicts the conditions or the consequences attached to it. Everything we want contradicts the conditions or the, con or the consequences attached to it. Every affirmation we put forward involves a contradictory affirmation. All our feelings are mixed up with their opposites. Now we're talking about sources of energy uh, and truth and being at precisely the right place at the right time. Now, William Blake didn't live for naught. Uh, so often in Blake's writings, uh, you get his understanding that what the that what uh, the, the, what the bourgeois world calls good is simply a version of energylessness. <laughs> uh, he, what, what was that thing he wrote about? Uh, Something about those who repress desire do do so because theirs is weak enough to be repressed or something. Uh, that good might be energylessness trying to get by. Not for Dante. For Dante, it is in that collision. But the collision must be, Dante says, it, it, if it were increased or lessened, the harmony would be lost. It must be harmonized. And so there is a supreme image for the harmonization of that energy in these cantos, which is dancing and singing and music, which is taking that what otherwise might be cacophonous reality and harmonizing. That's appropriate because we are where the theologians are, and that is their business. To take all of the cosmos, not some portion of it, you know, and orchestrate or harmonize the whole thing. So for Dante, about midway through Canto 10, he speaks of, he, he sees these souls of the theologians coming. Most of us would see them shuffling down the hall. Dante sees them coming in an extraordinary way because he sees them in their archetypal form. 
He calls them the sun-surpassing souls. And he says this is one of the supreme images in, in the whole divine comedy as far as I'm concerned. He says, this is line uh, 79 following. They stood like dancers still caught in the pleasure of the last round who pause in place and listen till they have caught the beat of the new measure. It's that millisecond between the beat of the dance in which it is impossible to distinguish between motion and repose. It's a marvelous image of the kind of acuity and attentiveness and lightness on of feet that a theologian ought to have. To be right in that present moment, having just heard how it has played out and being attentive to how it might play out. See? Oh, that... Theologians ought to be sub subjected to this daily as well. <laughs> Marvelous image in which action and contemplation are resolved, I think. I think it's one of those marvelous images that brings it together. As we're being introduced to these uh, theologians, these doctors of the church, uh, we meet Thomas Aquinas, and Thomas Aquinas uh, uh, shares a little discourse with Dante, and it closes, Canto 10 closes, very musically, again, with these lines. Then, as a clock tower calls us from above, when the bride of God rises to sing her matins to the sweet spouse that she may earn his love, the bride of God is the church, and she rises to sing her morning songs, and then the musicality of it. With one part pulling and another thrusting, ten, ten, so glad a chime, the faithful soul swells with the joy of love almost to bursting. Just so I saw the wheel of glory start and chime from voice to voice in harmonies so sweetly joined, so true from part to part, that none can know the like till he go free where joy begets itself eternally. Again, it's that resolving of the contraries and bringing them into music and harmony. Uh, let me read the Sayers translation of one of those tercets. She says, Where part with part will push and pull and ring, ding, ding, upon the bell, sweet notes that swell with love, the soul made apt for worshiping. Again, this is what theologians are called to do. The word here translated by Sayers as apt, translated by Charty as swells with the joy of love, is a word which has a distinctly erotic connotation in the Italian. That is to say, that I have to be made apt for worshiping, which is what theology ought to be, in the same way that a person must be made apt for lovemaking. And again, you get that great Dantean connection between these two realms, which he never forgets. And theology is in the business of making us apt for worship. One of the things I want to talk about today, 
one of the long forgotten terms except used in the in, in the pejorative is orthodoxy and orthodoxy means depending on how you translate doxa doxa really means glory orthodoxy means having the right it means proper worship it means having the right attitude and in order to have the right attitude one has to have uh, the right if you will i don't want to put too funny a spin on it one must be embra- one must embrace the right mythological constructs and one must be in right relationship to the mysteries in order to in order to be engaged in right worship to have the right attitude or to be worshiping in the right way and so theology in the, is in the business of making us apt for worship uh, that is to say arousing us to the place where we can worship i think it was it just pops into my head right now i think it was kierkegaard who said uh, it's one thing to stand on one leg and prove that god exists and it's another to drop onto your knees and thank him uh, so you see it's to make us apt for worshiping not for speculating And then Dante will explore, I think, explore this in the the cantos that follow. So a quick summary. The relationship to Father and Son is the energy source for creation. Mind and space are are manifestations of the same reality. Cycles and crossing, again, produce that energy source that if brought together in the right way can be harmonized into a proper understanding of the cosmos and therefore a proper preparation for worship. And that the energy has to be such that it is right on the edge of chaos, but harmonized uh, and made into a source of dynamism for life. Okay, so Canto Eleven starts, and we get a picture of we we get a picture of the Dominicans and the Franciscans. Uh, Aquinas was a Dominican. Uh, and so things get Dante, the Dominicans and the Franciscans in Dante's day um, were uh, at odds with each other. That they, that they remained, as the early church would say, in koinonia with each other is important and what makes it all valuable. That is to say, they remained in community in the larger sense, but they were constantly. Uh, uh, disregarding each other, uh, if perhaps the best way to put it. So Dante has Aquinas, the Dominican, praise St. Francis, and then in the next canto, he has Bonaventure, the Franciscan, praise St. Dominic. So Dante is, by using the Dominicans and the Franciscans, he is really taking an example of, of two dimensions of Christian reality and insisting that they be constantly kept connected to one another, even though they are quite distinct. So we might use something Wallace Stevens said and something Martin Buber said to get a, to, to, to preface what, uh, what we're going to see in Dante's work. Wallace Stevens uh, wrote this, 
and he excuse me he had to choose but it was not a choice between excluding things it was not a choice between but of he chose to include the things that in each other are included the whole the complicate the amassing harmony now there's an interesting thing in this because Stephen says he has to choose I was, I was suggesting that that Blake thought that sometimes bourgeois good was uh, energylessness trying to get by well um, sometimes uh, we try not to choose elevate the non-choice uh, to to some level of prominence and Wallace Stevens says he has to choose it must be a choice we are choice makers we are people who commit who make promises who take risk one has to choose but not to choose between but to choose the whole so just for a second to think of the difference between the energy of choosing between which is that great contentious energy which is what makes most of the world go around <laughs> or makes it go from side to side i guess <laughs> and the energy of non-choice which tries to pass itself off as something more sublime and the energy of choosing the whole the risk of making that choice choosing the whole well Do- uh, buber as you know because i've read this in so many it, it is it, it's one of the most important things ever written in this century i quote it all the time because i think it's so important buber said this about making that choice he says it is not decision to do the one and leave the other a lifeless mass deposited layer upon layer in my soul but he alone who directs the whole strength of the alternative into the doing of the charge who lets the abundant passion of what is rejected invade the growth to reality of what is chosen the even the franciscans had to choose the franciscan path they couldn't choose a concocted version of a, a you know a combination of the francis we'll talk about these two paths in a minute and the dominicans likewise but what they could do and i think what the voice of dante would encourage them to do and what buber has done here and what wallace stevens has done is they could choose yes but choose in such a way as to let the abundant passion of that other approach invade the growth to reality of their own it's a tremendous formula for getting the human species over the hump that it's now trying to get over i think i tell you what comes to mind we need to be committed there is a need to be committed sometimes it is worked out in the most pathetic way i mean you know somebody wears a t-shirt that says nike on it or schlitz beer or what i mean we need somehow to to say yes to something to be have made a choice and have that choice and and if and 
most of us tend to make it in the context of the of the dialectic. We're in this camp and not in that camp. And Dante is saying it all has to be there are two things. It all has to be in if one is going to be small c Catholic, it all has to be brought in. And Dante is is a small c Catholic. It all has to be brought in. The paradox is that in my life, I can't live it all out. So I have to choose one under, under the understanding that it all has to be brought in. And Buber's formula is perfect. You choose the one because you have only one life to live, and you've got to live it some way. You can't live it every way. You choose the one knowing that that other has equal ontological status, so that you let the abundant passion of what is rejected invade the growth of reality of what is chosen. Dante is now going to go on and talk about, at least uh, uh, implicitly, about the question of uh, orthodoxy and heresy. Now, here, well, wait a minute. We just said it all has to be included. See? And you say, now, wait a minute. How could you... That if it all has to be included, surely the term heresy is rendered uh, superfluous, right? Wrong. <laughs> we'll get into that in a minute. Not don't want to get there too soon. Um, okay, so where were we? Oh, all right. So now more on Do- Dominic and Francis, or the Dominicans and Franciscans, as as examples of two paths that must be brought into uh, the whole the the whole uh, economy of things. Aquinas says, one on either side, uh, he speaks of the God's bride, the church, has two princes, one on either side that she might be secure within herself and thereby be more faithfully his bride, one in his love, shown like the seraphim, the other in his wisdom, walk the earth bathed in the splendor of the cherubim. Love and wisdom. Francis is love, Dominic is wisdom. France, now, here's bringing these two together under one roof. Now, what is the roof? Dominic was a towering intellectual. His life work was to root out heresy. Okay, now, lay aside for a second your, your trouble with that word heresy because I want to come back to it. Francis was love and compassion. Dominic's the, the va- Dominic's source of energy, his potency, derived from his ability to make critical, subtle judgments. I'm just going to put it this way so we'll feel the tension. Francis's value and source of potency came from his determination to be non-judgmental. How do you put them both together? Huh? There's, that's how tough it is. Francis was the one who did not judge. And Dominic was the one who did. And they both must be brought together. Hard to do. I want to explore a little bit. um, The question of heresy and orthodoxy 
so that we can at least uh, be kind of up with Dante as he explores some of these things. Reinhold Niebuhr, one of the 20th century's, I think, important uh, theologians, philosophers, he wrote, High religion is distinguished from the religion of both primitives and ultra-moderns by its effort to bring the whole of reality and existence into some system of, system of coherence. The primitives, on one hand, are satisfied by some limited cosmos and the moderns by a superficial one. So, high religion avoids the narrow and the superficial or shallow uh, definition of reality and runs the risk of trying to bring into its cosmology the whole scene. That's what the word small c Catholic means. The, the, the large c Catholic uh, aspires to it uh, more often than it accomplishes it. To bring it all in, to find all of it, find a place for all of it. So we would think, well, no, no use bringing the word heresy into this. Not quite true. Uh, we find out about Dominic. He, he uh, was the uh, defender of orthodoxy. And we find Bonaventure saying of Dominic that he was a pruner of the vineyard. And then he goes on to use another metaphor. Then, speaking of Dominic's uh, uh, work, he says, Will and doctrine joined. And in the light of apostolic office, he bursts forth like a torrent from a mountain vein to smite the stumps and undergrowths of heresy. And where the thickets were least passable, there his assault bore down most heavily. So Dante is depicting this struggle against heresy as, first of all, a pruning of the vineyard, which if it is not pruned, sort of reverts, which is what the Old Testament prophets were always worried about. And the second image is a flash flood in a mountain stream clearing out all the incrustations so that heresy is that thing which clogs, which sets up itself in a static place instead of something that's flowing, that's making the journey to the ocean. Now, there's a curious uh, reversal in the, in, the, in the way we treat the two terms, heresy and orthodoxy, in our day. And to the extent that we have chosen either a narrow or a shallow, shallow uh, worldview, we're to blame for this. To the extent that the defenders of orthodoxy have chosen to defend one of its component parts instead of the whole of it, they're responsible for the change. But w whatever it is, there's been a change. And the change is this. We think of heresy as being the energetic system and orthodoxy as being the moribund system. It's the reverse of that. Here, as in many other situations, the tradition's defenders uh, have done more damage to it 
than most of his detractors. <laughs> Here's what Chesterton said. Chesterton has a flair for, for uh, uh, writing. Here's what he says about it. The church could not afford to swerve a hair's breadth on some things if she was to continue her great and daring experiment of the irregular equilibrium. Once let one idea become less powerful and some other idea would become too powerful. It was no flock of sheep the Christian shepherd was leading, but a herd of bulls and tigers, of terrible ideals and devouring doctrines, each one of them strong enough to turn to a false religion and lay waste the world. Remember that the church went in specifically for dangerous ideas. She was a lion tamer. The idea of birth through a Holy Spirit, of the death of a divine being, of the forgiveness of sins, of the fulfillment of prophecies are ideas which anyone can see need but a touch to turn them into something blasphemous or ferocious. If some small mistake were made in doctrine, huge blunders might be made in human happiness. A sentence phrased wrong about the nature of symbolism would have broken all the best statues in Europe. A slip in the definitions might stop all the dances, might wither all the Christmas trees, or break all the Easter eggs. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> It's in a book called Orthodoxy, Chesterton. Okay, I wanted to bring you, W.H. Auden has something equally as wonderful and something he wrote. I wanted to read it to you. <clears throat> this is Caliban. I talk about, this This is a, a thing he did on uh, the mirror in the sea, which is a, a takeoff on Shakespeare's uh, Tempest. And this is Caliban. You remember Caliban, that, that, that little gargoyle of a figure in, in The Tempest? Well, this is Caliban talking to the audience. Now, you see, again, Auden is seeing that everything's got to be included in, in this, including the Calibans, you see, which they were in the medieval cathedrals, the gargoyles. Got to have those things, too. So here's Caliban talking to the, to the audience, and he says, Our native muse, heaven knows and heaven be praised, is not exclusive. Whether out of the innocence of a childlike heart to whom all things are pure, or with the serenity of a status so majestic that the mere keeping up of tones and appearances, the suburban wonder as to what the straight-laced unities might possibly think, or sad, sour probability possibly say, are questions for which she doesn't because she needn't, she hasn't in her lofty maturity any longer to care a rap. All this, then says Auden, is, quote, proof of her amazing, unheard of power to combine and happily contrast, to make every shade of the social and moral palette contribute to the general richness of the skill, unapproached and unattempted by Grecian aunt or Gallic sister, with which she can skate full tilt toward the forbidden incoherence, and then, in the last split second, on the shuddering edge of the bohemian standardless abyss, affect her breathtaking triumphant turn. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> That's our native muse. 
And that's what orthodoxy is about, see? To make sure it's all, all in there, but just shy of that standardless, that bohemian standardless abyss. <laughs> Well, Dante has his version of that, too. In Canto 13, he begins, he sees this, the doctors of the church, the great theologians, doing this uh, wonderful double round dance. Two circles, one inside the other, each turning in the opposite direction. Again, another image for that source of energy, of, of tension. And Dante says, so might you, he said, if you could imagine this, so might you dimly guess if mankind could what actual stars joined in their double dance circled around the point on which I stood. There they sang no Bacchic chant or peon, but three persons in one divine nature and it and human nature in one person. Notice the, the simile. This was a wildly energetic dance but they were not sing they were not singing the bacchanalian song remember the bacchanalian song is the dionysian frenzy based on uh on intoxication and and uh and raw sexuality but Dante compares that to what the theologians are doing. It was that energetic. It was like that. You might mistake it for that, he said. He said, oh, I have to tell you, it wasn't that. Though if you looked on it, you might see that same kind of energy. But guess what they were singing? They were singing about the Trinity and the Incarnation. And that, again, is the core of the Orthodox tradition. They were singing about the Trinity and the Incarnation. And that, again, is the core of the Orthodox tradition. The Trinity and the Incarnation are the two mysteries that, if the energy system is to be maintained, must not be encroached upon. And they are the two mysteries which the heresies encroach upon. The, the significant her heresies encroach upon those two mysteries. They take them, bring them down out of the realm of mystery into some more explicable place. And that's what heresy does. And it's a je it jeopardizes the core of the whole theological economy by taking that mystery and uh, watering it down. So we can't let that happen. Those who appreciated that mystery, uh, engaged in a dance that looked for all the world like a Bacchanalian uh, dance. Aquinas concludes Canto 13 by saying, Lead weights to your feet may my words be that you may move slowly like a weary man to the yes and no of what you do not see. For he is a fool and low among his kind who answers yea or nay without reflection, nor does it matter on which road he runs blind. Opinions too often formed 
excuse me, opinions too soon formed often deflect man's thinking from the truth into gross error, in which his pride then binds the intellect. It is worse than vain for men to leave the shore and fish for truth unless they know the art, for they return worse off than they were before. Just to say, be slow to conclude. Somebody once said that orthodoxy is reticence. Orthodoxy is reticence. It is heresy that is cocksure. It is heresy that is uh, doctrinaire, even if it is calling itself orthodoxy. It's orthodoxy that is, com is committed to the mystery. Once committed to the mystery, and the mystery, the great, the great repositories of mystery in the Christian tradition of the Trinity and the Incarnation, once committed to the mystery, it is a mystery. And you can only be so doctrinaire in the face of a mystery. Your only, your only legitimate uh, doctrinal position can be that that is a mystery, please. <laughs> and it puts a limit to your doctrinaire stance. But the heretic can be cocksure. Now, I, I realize I'm talking about these in a sort of genetic, generic sense. Here's what Santayana wrote. <coughs> we live experimentally, moodily, in the dark. Each, each generation breaks its eggshell with the same haste and assurance as the last, pecks at the same indigestible pebbles, dreams the same dreams or others just as absurd. And if it hears anything of what former men have learned by experience, it corrects their maxims by its first impressions and rushes down any untrodden path which it finds alluring to die in its own way or become wise too late and to no purpose. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, Santiago is the one who gave us that thing about history. Dante goes on. Men, uh, excuse me, Aquinas goes on. Men should not be too smug in their own reason. Only a foolish man will walk his field and count his ears too early in the season. For I have seen a briar through winter's snows rattle its tough and menacing bare stems and then in season open its pale rose. Isn't that a beautiful image? Oh. And I have seen a ship cross all the main, true to its course and swift and then go down just as it entered its home port again. Boy, isn't that something? Those two images, they're absolutely beautiful. <laughs> be slow to conclude. Stay with the mystery. If you're going to be doctrinal, defend the mystery. But don't be doctrinal in that other way. Well, at this point in the material, I need to attach a product warning label to <laughs> to uh, to my own work, which is to say we are about to uh, take a look at uh, an encounter <clears throat> between Dante and his archetypal father figure, who is a who was a, a warrior and um, 
I, I have to admit at this point that I have uh, some peculiar uh, relationships to this kind of material, archetypally and personally, because my own uh, father was killed in World War II, and uh, and uh, so I'm so if so if in the course of this thing that I'd like to present to you, uh, you notice some peculiar spins on it. Part of it will be because of my own uh, personal relationship to the material, but I don't think altogether so. In Canto 14, Dante sees a vision of, of Christ on, on the cross. And as he's looking at that vision in Canto 15, he notices something that looks at first like a shooting star, except for the strange uh, difference, which is that it stays within the confines of the cross. It rushes from the arm of the cross down to the foot of the cross where Dante is. He says, so in a trail of fire across the air from the right arm to the foot of the great cross, a star streaked from the constellation there. Nor did that gemstone leave its diadem. Like fire behind an alabaster screen, it crossed those radiant ranks, still one with them. Just so did the shade of ancient Ilium, if we may trust our greatest muse, go forth to greet Aeneas in Elysium. Now, this is interesting what it tells us. <clears throat> We're about to meet Cacciaguida, Dante's great-great-grandfather, who was one of the crusaders who died a martyr's death in one of the crusades. But Dante tells us how to... Uh, the Divine Comedy is user-friendly, you know, and so he tells us how to uh, approach this scene. And, and one approaches it in terms of the story of Aeneas going to the underworld to visit his father Anchises. Just so, he says, did the shade of ancient Ilium, that's Anchises, go forth to greet Aeneas in Elysium. So we'll have to look... Uh, Dante, of course, took so many of his themes from Virgil's Aeneid. The central one, and we'll... We'll end today by looking at uh, a passage uh, in Book Six of the Aeneid. But a central theme: the great crisis for crisis for Aeneas, the crisis of will, which Dante is about to face. The crisis of will was when Aeneas had to go and consult the, the shade of his his dead father uh, in order to uh, rededicate himself to his great historical work. And so we're told that this is in that same theme. In Canto II of the Inferno, Dante had said his, his first uh, of many uh, uh, weakened, uh, his first collapse of will of many. Canto II, he's, he's, he had already said yes to Virgil, and then he had a second thought. He said, but I am not Aeneas. I am not Paul. And this Aeneas and Paul connection uh, is at two levels. Aeneas is the founder of the empire, founder of Rome, which becomes the seat of the empire. Paul is the founder of the church, and those are the two inst uh, institutions that Dante uh, considers crucial for human history. But also, he's not Aeneas and not Paul for another reason. Aeneas had to go to the underworld to visit the voice of his ancestral father. Paul, when he is converted, goes to the third heaven. He describes that in one of his letters. So that... Uh, Dante has to go both into the underworld and into the heavenly world. And so here he is meeting his ancestral father in the heavenly world, not in the underworld. 
Virgil, in a way, was an was a father figure for him. But this is even more, even though it's much briefer, it is in some ways more powerful even than the Virgil connection. First of all, uh, to see a theme that's being worked out here, and I, I'm going to ex expand it a little bit and go beyond uh, the, the actual text, but remember that, uh, and Dante reinforces this several times, Cacciaguida was a crusader. And what Dante is learning is that he too is in that line, that he too has a role to play that is not... Uh, that is not discontinuous with the role that Cacciaguida played. The simple-minded would say, well, then I must be a crusader too. Well, crusader means, depending on which branch of the etymological search you take, crusader means one who has taken the cross, one who carries the cross, or more literally it means being crossed receiving the cross. I would like to leave the poem for a second just to explore something. If this thing we talked about earlier, which is bringing these two contradictions together in some kind of harmony, is what uh, the cross is about or what Christianity is about, then an early, and we might then say, without being too pejorative, we might say adolescent version of it would be, that is to say, early on, my only, I'm only able to relate to that tension of opposites by choosing one and fighting the other. That is to say, when I feel the cross, all I can do is get cross. You see? And I think as an adolescent, as a child, when one feels that, it is predictable and not altogether, it's not avoidable, so not altogether uh, wrong that it should just go that way. Later on, with maturity, there is becoming, not becoming cross, but receiving the cross. And Dante, I think, is a crusader in that latter sense, in that he too has a role to play in, uh, with regard to the Christian dispensation. But it is, a, it is a role that is ever so much more subtle and rich and symphonic than Cacciaguida, his great-great-grandfather, who was simply a crusader. Apropos of, of shifting, of, of the move from crusader in the Cacciaguida sense to a bearer of the cross in the Dantean sense, uh, here's something that John Adams wrote uh, more than 200 years ago. He said, I must study politics and war that my children may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, and architecture. Now, and that is, you see, uh, and then, of course, the children who get who are studying painting, poetry, music, and architecture, look back and they, and they say, oh, too bad about those roughnecks, you see. Uh, and I think there's some sense here, even in Dante's work, of that we, ha that we grow beyond that, but we don't need to be, we don't need to condemn it. We understand it for what it is. Was the, it was the only response available at the time, and were it not for that response, we'd probably be having to make it ourselves.